Hello, and welcome to this podcast by the Center for Geopolitics at the University of Cambridge. My name is Philip Hirsch, and today I will be talking with Ulrike Franke. She is a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations in London and one of the conveners of the German podcast Sicherheitshalber, which one might translate as on security or for reasons of security, and which is the leading German and German-speaking podcast on current security policy. Ulrike, thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. Ulrike, just last month, you have published an article in War on the Rocks. It is entitled, A Millennial Considers the New German Problem After 30 Years of Peace. It's a fascinating read, and I really um, can't recommend it enough. And I think it forms an excellent introduction into this episode, which is going to be on German security policy and, and foreign policy more generally. What was your article about and what is this new German problem that you are writing about? Sure. Well, uh, first of all, thanks for, for reading it. And I was really happy to see that this piece seemed to resonate with quite a few people because this is one of those articles I've been wanting to write for ages. I guess the basic idea, or let's say the starting point of all of this was that in 2019, we had these celebrations, the 30-year anniversary celebrations of the fall of the Berlin Wall, right? And then the year later, 30 years of German reunification. And when I listened to all the speakers that, that were talking about, you know, the last 30 years and Germany and the world and all of this since 1989, I realized that they all kind of made the same point, which was to say that Well, the 30 years following 1989 were actually really unnormal, geopolitically speaking, because they were basically characterized by a geopolitical calm that's, you know, rather unusual when you look at world politics in general. Because when you think about it, you know, since 1989, Germany really wasn't kind of in the middle of any geopolitical development anymore. Like we have a long history of really being the center of geopolitical developments. And with 1989, all of this ended. And not only that, not only did we have like years and years where very little seemed to be happening geopolitically speaking and anything that did happen didn't directly impact Germany, but was rather, you know, outside Germany and then outside the, the EU or, or Europe to that extent. Also within Germany, we had a rather crazy political continuity. I mean, you know, now, now Angela Merkel is actually stepping down and in September, we're going to get a new chancellor. But, you know, I'm 34 now and I've known three chancellors, which is crazy when you think about it. I mean, you know, I think a U.S. Um, a citizen of my age would have known about six presidents and an Italian has gone through 20 or so prime ministers. So we also had this kind of political continuity. So that's one, one kind of aspect that really, you know, kind of got me thinking, like, what does this mean for people such as myself who grew up in this time of geopolitical calm and who have never known anything else? And then the kind of second element is that also with 1989, what, what happened wasn't just this geopolitical calm that started then, but also 1989 gave birth to this idea of the end of history, right? Francis Fukuyama's um, famous essay that basically describes that ideological battles are over. And that also seemed true for quite a long time, right? I mean, the, the Cold War ended, the ideological competition between the Soviet Union and the US ended. And for, you know, a few decades, it really seemed as if 
the liberal model, if you want to call it that, had won. I mean, not that the whole world was like a liberal democracy, but countries definitely seemed to be moving in this direction. And and so the 90s, you know, the kind of time when I grew up, the millennials grew up, and, and we established our understanding of what the normal really is. This was the time where, yeah, everything seemed to be moving in the right direction. The European Union grew, more and more countries became democratic, the liberal system was was embraced, all of that. And so, again, so now we have this generation of millennials that basically grew up in this time that I would consider, yeah, somewhat unnormal, geopolitically calm, ideologically you know, moving in the right direction, the um, geopolitical power play is over. It's not about power in general anymore, but about the rule of law and all of this. And now we have this generation that grew up during this time, and somehow the world seems to be reverting back to what maybe is actually more normal. Because, you know, and, and I would, I would, you know, if you were asking me when to put the date, I would say, you know, 2014 more or less changed these decades of, of geopolitical calm because then we had Russia annexing Ukraine. I mean, there were other things before, but that's where I would kind of set the date. And so since then, we actually see huge geopolitical changes, right? I mean, not just Russia, but we also have, of course, the rise of China. We have changes in the United States that may turn out to be, you know, extremely impactful for, for Europe. And so I, I basically am wondering in this piece whether my generation of, of German and to some extent European policymakers and foreign policymakers, whether we are ready to kind of take, take on these geopolitical changes, given that we're really not used to thinking in those terms. Yeah, that's a great outline of where German security policy comes from in the last 30 years or so. I would definitely agree with that. But it, it does sound also critical. I mean, it, when you read it, it seems like you don't really, you're not confident that this young generation is actually ready for the challenge that you've just outlined. But you mentioned the Ukraine crisis. Wouldn't you say that in Berlin thinking has evolved? I mean, things like Landesverteidigung, this focus on domestic defense rather than international stabilization missions, that has entered the discourse again. NATO 2% goal has entered the discourse again. Uh, there is no money put into defense. Doesn't that show that there has already been some sort of adoption of, let's say, strategic thinking in Berlin? Maybe a little bit, but not as much as we maybe need. So first of all, to, to pick up on your point on strategic thinking. Yes. So the, the concern I have is that what we haven't really learned is this method really of strategic thinking where you kind of look without any preconceived notions, you kind of look at the situation in the world, the map of the world, you consider your own strength and your own interests and what you want to do in the world. And you look at, you know, how the rest of the world looks like and what your opponents and allies, et cetera, can do and want to do. And then you, you formulate a strategy on the basis of this and maybe change your resources in order to achieve your, your goals. What I'm worried about is that that is a method that we're not really familiar with anymore because we've, I think, romanticized international relations uh, to some extent. And we're thinking, for example, alliances, you know, I'm all for alliances, but we should kind of remember that the idea of alliances is that there's an interest of being in an alliance. You may also very much like the other country you're in alliance with, but that's not the main reason. And so I think we've, we've kind of idealized um, things like alliances, and now alliances seem to be really about really liking the other countries and, and things like that. And, and I don't think that that's a great um, approach going forward. Have things changed? I mean, number one, the first thing to note is, of course, that the millennial generation that I'm talking about, they're basically only slowly getting into positions of power, right? I mean, these are the, I don't know, 25 to 35-year-olds, uh, more or less. Uh, so they aren't exactly the ones that are taking the big decisions in Berlin 
at the moment, but some of them, of course, are somewhat influential. So looking at a kind of bigger picture and kind of leaving the millennials behind, have things changed in, in Germany since 2014? It, it really depends on from where you're looking at this. When you are in Berlin, it definitely feels as if things have changed over the last few years. I mean, already, you know, 2001 and Afghanistan, um, that, that was a big step for Germany. And then in 2014, we had this idea of the Munich consensus, where at the Munich Security Conference, you had all these high-level German politicians who got on stage and, and talked about Germany taking on more responsibility. We did have an increase in defense spending, something that's quite often forgotten. But yes, German defense spending is actually going up and has, has been going up for for a while. So we, we have all of this. And from a German viewpoint, that actually looks like a big step. It's just that from the outside and from the allies' views, it doesn't seem to be such a big step. And from an American or, or other European points of view, it still seems as if Germany isn't quite up to the task it should take on given its relative size. So I, I very much encountered this, that there's a disconnect between, you know, how the, I want to say, the Berlin bubble thinks about this and then how, how people talk about Germany and its capabilities in, say, London and Paris and, and the U.S. So, yeah, it's, it, it depends from where, from, from how you look at it or from where you look at it. You say that there has to be a need to learn or relearn this type of strategic thinking. If it was up to you, you know, if, if you were invited, you know, to, to talk to the next German chancellor and they say, you know, what can we do better? Where do you say Germany can pick up this sort of strategic thinking? Where would this come from? I mean, I guess it's an ongoing and kind of active process. It, it really starts first with the realization that that's something that maybe we have forgotten or just not, that's kind of the strategic muscle we haven't trained for so long. So what, what I would recommend is to take this look at the world and try to identify more clearly and without kind of ideological viewpoints, you know, what is the kind of power that we have, what are our interests, and how can we make sure that, that our interests are, are being heard. And the other element, I mean, and this is something that's kind of very tricky to talk about in Germany, but I think we need a bit of new approach to military power. Mind you, this isn't about using military power. This is more about understanding that military power isn't just about waging wars. There's this idea in Germany now, especially in the German public, that anyone who kind of wants any kind of military capabilities is basically preparing for war. Like, that's not the point. But military power, very broadly speaking, gives you three capabilities. Number one, importantly, it gives you geopolitical power. Geopolitical power comes from a few sources. Economic power is one. Soft power also matters, but the classic hard power element is military power. So that's number one. Military power does contribute to a geopolitical power and influence in the world. Number two, military power helps you with deterrence. So to deter anyone who may want to attack you one way or another. Again, also not just military attacks, but other, other influence. And then third, military power gives you the ability to, well, actually carry out military operations. And there are many reasons to carry out military operations from, you know, defending against an actual attack to wanting to intervene elsewhere. Um, I think it's the last point that, that we understand, if you like, best. Doesn't mean that, you know, we're comfortable using the military, which I think is, is very good. But we have kind of forgotten the first two elements. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, Germany still doesn't spend a lot on, on military and this generally 
isn't isn't really great at discussing these these issues, and so that's a bit um, that's a bit problematic. I guess it's not unsurprising that this is not too much a center of an election campaign. Uh, but they often, obviously, these things do matter in government discourses. Do you think that Germany is facing a sort of choice in September regarding of what sort of government comes in as to having a government which does put the foot down more on things like military engagement, etc., or a government which might end up saying we want to invest more, we want to engage, we want to take things like hard power more seriously. I, I don't think the differences are so extreme. I mean, when you look at who may win the election in September, it seems likely that the CDU, CSU, German, the, the Christian Democrat, Merkel's party, they may un- end up in government either as the number one or number two coalition party. The Greens may end up in government also either as the bigger or the smaller coalition party. And then there are a few kind of other parties that may un- end up in different coalitions. I think the, the most extreme outcomes, if you like, the most furthest apart outli- uh, outcomes would be either ha- having a CDU-led government with, say, the Liberals or a Green-led coalition of the, the, the two left-leaning parties, the SPD and, and the Linke. Both of these coalitions actually aren't the most likely ones, to be honest, but, but these are the kind of extremes, if you like. How different are they when it comes to foreign policy? I mean, actually, interestingly, on foreign policy... I'm not certain that they're massively different. I mean, there are certain things that that are genuinely important for Germany, you know, the kind of the importance of the European Union and working with European partners, the transatlantic alliance, and then a somewhat critical stance to to Russia and a more critical stance to China. Um, and, and there are some differences there, but, but they're not completely uh, different. When it comes to military power, yes, I think a, a kind of CDU-led power is more likely to have this, what I may call strategic approach to military power and kind of understand that, that having military power serves other purposes than just, you know, invading another countries, while a more left-leaning government may be much more critical and much less willing to invest any kind of money into the, into the military realm. But yeah, I think it's it's unlikely that we're going to see after the September election a government that's totally going to revolutionize German foreign policy. That being said, you know, on Russia and China, but maybe especially on Russia, there are some differences in, I mean, there are basically nuances, but but nuances that, that may matter in the end. Well, there you bring up two very interesting cases, which we should maybe discuss a bit more, Russia and China. Maybe let's start with China, there there seems to have been a bit of a change in tune towards China in Berlin. A lot of my conversation partners have stressed that under Merkel, the idea was you want to change China through trade. This idea that in the long term, engaging with China is that's going to lead to some positive change. But Hong Kong or the Uyghur question have shown that that doesn't work. Is the next government in Germany bound to have a sort of more robust engagement with China? I mean, I guess what we are currently seeing in Germany is not so dissimilar from the change from Obama to Biden, like leaving out Trump. But when it comes to China, I think the Obama administration had this, yeah, you want to kind of call it liberal idea of bringing China into the international framework and changed through trade and, and all of this, with, which, by the way, is very much the kind of end of history post-1989 mindset. And I think the Biden administration has more or less abandoned this, mainly because, you know, it doesn't seem to fit reality. And I think we're, we, we're seeing a similar development in, in Germany, where also increasingly people realize, well, 
no, it doesn't seem to be working. We, we aren't changing China. China is getting more powerful and is, is gaining in geopolitical power and is th- doing things that we don't like. So I think this is more or less true across the board. What's definitely playing a huge role in the German discussion on China are human rights issues. The, the repression of the Uyghurs, the whole surveillance state. I think all of this really, really matters to quite a few policymakers and especially to the Greens, I would say. Um, again, possibly um, the, the leader of the next government. I think they are likely to take a more, yeah, let's call it hawkish stand, uh, foreign policy speaking, uh, towards China than the, the current government. I think that's a possibility. Um, that being said, of course, there are important trade and economic links to China. And so any future German chancellor and any future German government will need to balance these economic interests with concerns about human rights and concerns about the rise of China. And maybe just the final point, I mean, this is this is a big issue in the transatlantic relationship as well. And I think what is still the case is that for the US, it is very clear that the rise of China is bad news because it literally means that, you know, you are the one superpower and now there's another power rising. Like that's by definition problematic. For Germany and, and for Europe, by the way, more broadly, the situation isn't quite as clear. I mean, of course, we close allies to the United States. And of course, we want to live in a world that's dominated by the US rather than one that's dominated by China. But just kind of geopolitically speaking, we're not quite as set on confronting and hedging China as the US may be. And I think this is going to influence the, the transatlantic relationship quite a bit because, of course, the US very much wants Europe on board to do this whole hedging against against China. And I'm not quite sure we're quite willing to do that. I'd like to talk about the US in a second, because that's obviously also a very important topic. But um, let's also then quickly address Russia. Germany is often seen as a having a special relationship to Russia, maybe the one Western country with a historic and long-standing link somehow to the Kremlin. Is that going to be kept up in the future? Is it has a has a Chancellor Laschet or a Chancellor Baerbock? the same permission, let's say, from Washington, if you would, to to keep a special relationship going? Or is there too much impatience in Paris, in London, in Washington with Germany's stance towards Russia? I I wouldn't quite call it special relationship, but it is true that basically Germany, ever since I can remember, and, and I guess this was even the case during the Cold War, has seen itself and is seeing itself as a bit of a bridge between Eastern and, and Western Europe, but but also between, you know, Western Europe and Russia. And there are some close ties. And, you know, this was even the case throughout the, the Cold War. There were, you know, gas pipelines uh, that, that were used as a kind of, you know, means to keep communication channels open between the Soviet Union and the West. How successful this was is, is another question, but I think this is a bit of a an, an understanding that Germany or a lot of German policymakers have, and they want to keep this because, well, it ideally helps to avoid conflict. That being said, you know, we've seen since 2014, but even before 2008, that, that somehow Russia isn't a partner you can really deal with. They, they don't seem to be inclined to do anything the, the West uh, asks them to, to do. The, the Russia relationship for, for Germany is definitely a, a difficult one. With regard to Laschet, so the, the CDU chancellor candidate and, and Baerbock from the Greens, 
I mean, I expect, again, if Baerbock really becomes chancellor, I think it is important that the relationship or the stance toward Russia will become a bit more firm. Baerbock has spoken out against the Nord Stream 2 pipeline that, of course, has been a big issue in the transatlantic relationship and in, in the European relationship. And so they may adopt a stronger stance toward Russia than the CDU is currently doing and is likely to do in in the future. But it's definitely not as if the CDU are, are kind of Putin huggers and the kind of Russland Versteher that, that we talk about uh, a lot. You mentioned North Stream 2 in your article. Why does the German government insist so much on keeping it running? I actually don't think that they insist so much on keeping it running. I think Germany has managed to completely maneuver itself into a corner and there are no good options left. I mean, Nord Stream 2, you know, some people see this as an example of actually Germany doing massively interest politics and they really don't care about anyone else and they just want to make money and all of this. I don't think it was that. I honestly think Nord Stream 2 started out with this idea of trading is good and helps build relationships. And I mean, of course, making money is, is great too. But again, pipelines are a good way of keeping Russia engaged and keeping political channels open and all of this. And by now, I don't think there are many people left in Berlin or elsewhere that think Nord Stream 2 is a good idea. The question is just, what's, what's worse, finishing it? or not finishing it when it's almost completed? And what kind of leverage can we get through it? What kind of message can you send by you know, either finishing it or, or not? Um, so yeah, definitely Germany has maneuvered itself into a corner and the pipeline is pretty much done. I mean, I think there are like a few hundred kilometers left out of thousands. So it's, it's just a kind of bad situation all around. But I don't get the impression that there's anyone sitting in Berlin saying like, yeah, that was a great idea and I would do this again. In your article, you talk about Germans sort of hoping for the world to go back to normal again, that rather than Germany changing its perspective as how to engage with the world strategically, the world just goes back to this end of history uh, dynamic of the 90s and 2000s. And that way things Humpty Dumpty uh, get better, put back together again in a way. Um, I think there is no relationship that is probably more appropriate as a description for than the transatlantic relationship. And this idea that with the President Biden, we might be able to turn back the clock on the Trump years somehow. How realistic is that? And what can Germany expect from a Biden presidency? And also what can it not expect from it? I mean, I guess the clock on the transatlantic relationship has turned back to some extent. And I remember very well when Trump was still in power, Joe Biden was at the Munich Security Conference and he very much kind of helped this transatlantic speech that that made me feel like we were back somewhere in the, in the 90s. And now he has become president and he has his message very much is America is back. That being said, there I think there are two things for uh, Germans and Europeans to consider. Number one, the relationship with the US, especially when it comes to defense, needs to change and has to change simply because it is so unbalanced. I mean, no one would look at today's you know, burden sharing within NATO and, and burden sharing on security and defense. No one would come to this, look at this and, and think, yeah, that makes total sense. I mean, we have these 500 million Europeans versus uh, 350 or so million Americans and the Americans are the huge military power and basically providing this umbrella, nuclear umbrella as well to Europe um, in a way that seems 
you know, surprising. Of course, this is due to the history. You know, there's a reason why we ended up here, but it just, it, it is so imbalanced that I think basically no matter what, so no matter what president and no matter how the future develops, this this will need to change to some extent. And I think within the kind of decision-making circles in Berlin, this is understood to some extent, but still not something that, you know, anyone is particularly happy about or wants to approach. Um, but the second element is that I think the election of Trump and the whole like last four years really have left scars in Europe insofar as it just has shown that from one day to another, the transatlantic relationship can change massively. Um, and it is not as if Trump was, you know, really ousted from power. I mean, yes, he lost, but it's not as if he lost by as much as the Europeans would, would have thought or wanted or liked, which basically tells you that, you know, someone like Trump or worse could be back and there could be isolationist tendencies within the US. And so the whole transatlantic relationship is just not as secure anymore as it as it used to. And so because of these two reasons, again, number one, definitely just structural and reason, and the other this kind of diminishing trust in his realization that things can change. I think the Europeans and, and, and Germans, yeah, realize to some extent that they need to do more. And this is where the whole discussion in Europe about European strategic autonomy, European strategic sovereignty comes from. The thing is just Germany in particular was really happy with Biden winning and they are more than happy to kind of say, oh, brilliant, everything goes back to normal and we don't need to think about kind of capabilities anymore. So I think there is this tendency, but but it's yeah, it's not as if no one in Berlin would would realize that times have changed. But yeah, I think I think you know whenever I go to Paris, people are worried that Berlin is is too happy about Biden winning and kind of wants to just forget the last four years and and go back to sometimes in the two thousands or nineteen nineties. And 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 Paris doesn't take that approach, I'd say. How realistic was this European response to the double shock of twenty sixteen Brexit and Trump? Um, how realistic was that in the first place? I mean, debates about a European army have been going on for years. Um, and yeah. I think it is, is actually in the Green Party manifesto for this election. So, um, you know, how, um, how, how much weight can you put on such discourse anyways, given that it has basically not moved anywhere in the last 10, 20 years? So to kind of put it in one sentence, I very much believe in the idea of European strategic sovereignty or autonomy don't you know start on the term i don't quite care however i do not believe even a tiny little bit in the european army and i think the debate on the european army in germany has been rather annoying and not really helpful because to kind of again put it in one sentence i think we can talk about and we may get a european army once we have a united states of europe and since we're nowhere near there I don't think it makes sense to talk about, you know, kind of combined military forces. That being said, the European strategic autonomy or European strategic sovereignty, I think, is a sensible approach. Again, it shouldn't be about becoming fully independent from the U.S. or alienating the U.S. This is the way that some have liked to portray it. I don't think it's absolutely that. But it is about, you know, Europe's ability to act, Europe's ability to do things by itself, militarily, but also in other areas. And to me, that makes a lot of sense. And quite honestly, I think that the U.S. should also embrace that. I mean, we're now very much talking about strengthening the European pillar of NATO. I mean, that's good for NATO and then that's good for the US. So I think that is the, the right approach. And as you say, this was 
to some extent, a reaction to Brexit, but also made possible by Brexit, because with the UK left uh, an, an EU member state that never really was on board with European defense efforts. And it was a reaction to, yeah, Trump and all of that. But I think this discussion and this effort should definitely continue. And I think it does to some extent. I mean, we had over the last few years, we had new European programs and efforts such as PESCO and the European Defense Fund and like lots of, you know, things that the EU has done and this is going to continue. So I think that's the the right approach. But yeah, discussions about a European army just don't strike me as as useful. I don't see I don't see what this army could look like. I don't see who who would be in it. I don't see who would decide to use it. Um, I don't see how it solves any of the problems that we're currently having. But somehow Germans in particular, but also some other Europeans, but Germans in particular love to talk about this. And whenever I talk to, um, yeah, say like more general public audiences, there's always someone who asks about wouldn't the European army be a good idea? And that's quite, quite fascinating to me. Well, what you say ties in maybe almost inadvertently with another trend, which is the question of what sort of military engagement might Germany follow in the future, given that we are just leaving Afghanistan. And this model of international stabilization mission very, very far away from home has maybe been come under questioning. And of course, right now, as we speak, that the other main prong of German military engagement abroad is Mali, and that is coming under criticism too, given the political developments there and the French doubts about that mission. So is, is that the sort of new strategic thinking that we might see a focus on home defense, you know, Eastern Europe, and then maybe the, the more immediate neighborhood in, in the Mediterranean and that sort of crisis management in the future? Uh Yes. And actually, there was just a few, I want to say weeks ago, a kind of very small reform proposal that was discussed or is being discussed in Germany and reform for the Bundeswehr. And indeed, the general idea is to change the Bundeswehr's main focus from these missions abroad to giving it more of a focus of home defense and defense of the the, the allies and the, the NATO alliance and, and, and the EU. It, this is really interesting to me as when I kind of started working on well, all of these topics, that was very much the time when we were discussing changing the Bundeswehr from a defense-oriented armed forces to armed forces that are able to intervene. And now we seem to be doing, you know, kind of going going the other way. And I'm not sure whether that's particularly clever given, you know, these foreign missions, it's not as if, you know, anyone wants them, but sometimes, you know, there are situations where you have to do them for various reasons. You know, you may have to intervene to, to stop a humanitarian catastrophe. You may have to intervene to support an ally, which was the case in Afghanistan, of course, with the US and, and now in Mali with France. You may have to intervene for, for many reasons. And so I don't think these kind of missions are necessarily going anywhere. I, I, I've got no idea, you know, whether we're going to see those in the next five to 10 or 20 years, but it just strikes me as these aren't completely, you know, missions by choice. And if we don't want to do them, we just don't do them. There's a reason why we did them. So what I'm saying is that I guess the, the Bundeswehr should still be able to do that. Now, in addition, I very much agree that, yes, of course, Germany's armed forces should be able to defend the home territory and the alliance. If the current thinking is that we can't do that, that seems rather concerning. So I, I agree with going back, if you like, to that. But yeah, I wouldn't quite go completely the other way either and, and, and just hope and believe that somehow we don't have to do missions such as Afghanistan or Mali um, anymore in the future. Will you and I 
live to ever see Germany meet the 2% target. That is this famous transatlantic commitment to spend 2% of GDP on defense. Ha! <laughs> Should we put money on this? Um, I mean, the goal right now, I think, is to reach 1.5 soon-ish. And then, yeah, they have this, at least in the last, I think, coalition agreement, they had this great formulation about the, the target corridor of 2% or something that they wanted to reach. So I think the idea is, is still there. I mean, as Annalena Baerbock of the Greens loves to repeat, the 2% measurement is a crude one. Because it measures, you know, a percentage of GDP, which means that there are kind of two elements that can change to change this percentage. One is the actual defense spending and the other is the GDP. So if, you know, Germany runs into a major recession, we may reach 2% by not spending any, any more money. Um, and that, of course, wouldn't be ideal. But if your question is basically, you know, will Germany spend significantly more on defense and, and build up its, its capabilities in a way that, you know, NATO and the US would like to see... <sighs> In the, in the short to medium term future, I'm not not extremely confident because I mean we just had a CDU led government and didn't manage it, so I don't really see why this should be different with the next one. And if we have a green led government, you know that's certainly not going to be their main focus. So yeah, I don't, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. Put money on it. Uh, in that case, I won't. Um, I won't put my bet on either. The the, the one thing I, I would be very interested in your view on this debate on responsibility versus restraint, because on the one hand there is this debate of saying of allies and partners such as America or the French saying Germany has to do more, Germany has to step up, Germany has to engage more. At the same time, it is a major European force in economic terms, and of course in historic terms, it hasn't done Germany very well to try to reach a too overbearing political role. And of course, there are sensitivities to this in, in many countries, in particular smaller countries who remember very well the 40s, things are anchored in national consciousness. So to what extent does Germany actually not have to disappoint hopes into more international responsibility? That has been called the German question. And I think that's still the German question. I mean, there's the saying that is Germany too big for Europe, right? Germany is too big to Europe, but too small for the world. Um, that's this kind of saying. And I think there's some truth to it. And I also think, you know, when it comes to this reticence to use military forces and this, this restraint of, of not wanting to solve conflicts militarily, I actually think that's a good approach. And within Europe and within the transatlantic alliance, I'm quite happy that Germany is taking on this role. I mean, there's no reason why we should all be the US or France or the UK. So, so I think that's an okay position to adopt and can actually be quite, quite useful and make sure that, you know, we don't do stupid things. So I, I'm, I'm fine with that and we can keep this. My concern, again, with the military and Germany is more the the not having any military capabilities which you know undermines your deterrence and undermines your geopolitical power and with ECFR where I work not too long ago we did a survey among kind of European decision makers and we actually asked them like you know how would you feel if Germany actually invested much more in its military power and spent the two percent and it was really striking that there wasn't a single country 
that said it wouldn't like this. I mean, the large majority said, yeah, we absolutely support this. And then there were a few that said, okay, or fine, or we don't have a strong view. Um, and yes, that among those were some Eastern European countries with a difficult history with Germany. But, you know, I, I think we've really reached this point where, where Europeans trust Germany enough to not suspect that they're going to invade a European uh, countries the moment they get more military power. So yes, I think having this kind of role of trying to keep other Europeans restrained and, and to consider diplomatic options and all of this, I think this is totally fine and, and makes a lot of sense for Germany. That being said, it's a delicate balance because the EU also needs some leadership. And we've seen with Emmanuel Macron that it's not enough to have ideas and visions, even political capital at home. Uh, you also need political capital in, in Europe. And, and France and Macron just didn't have that quite enough. So here, the Franco-German motor still is very important. So Germany does have a little bit of a leadership role in the EU, whether it likes it or not. And I think most Europeans actually want Germany to take on a little bit of a, of a leadership role, but not too much. And yeah, this is a delicate balance. Right now, we are... I think we're leaning a little bit too much in the direction of not wanting to take on too much of a role. We certainly shouldn't overcorrect this, but maybe correct this a little bit. Well, fantastic. Um, thank you very much. Um, that was Ulrike Franke, a fellow millennial and also a senior <laughs> policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Thanks for listening to this podcast on Germany and the world. You can find the Center for Geopolitics on Twitter at Cam Geopolitics. All of our events and podcasts are advertised on our website at cfg.polis.cam.ac.uk.